The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Father, it's your Word that produces life. It's your Spirit that illuminates it to us. Um, it's not fancy words. Um, so we ask that uh, as your Word is delivered today, uh, that you would uh, implant it in people's hearts and minds, that uh, salvation would come, people would be drawn to you, and that your per- people uh, will also um, put their hearts and their minds focus on you, um, living for you, Christ. So we ask uh, for your spirit to, to guide our time now um, as your word is spoken. In Christ's name, amen. Have you guys ever been distracted? Yeah. Especially during important tasks. It's important to stay focused, right? Like if you're cooking chili for your small group, it's important to not burn it. Like literally smoke pouring out of it, right, Terry? (laughs) Um, Or uh, table saws. Those are important too um, to keep your focus on. Learn that one the hard way too. Uh, But there's distractions around us all the time, right? You guys see that squirrel over there? All right. A couple have looked. All right. My, my own kids looked. Good job, guys. Distractibility is an increasing problem in our society, and, and this is probably one of the main culprits of it, right? Hold on a second. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Those are the last corny jokes. Well, they're probably all corny, but uh, a couple weeks ago, I took my boys to uh, hunt with some friends uh, to go shoot some dove, and we're, uh, while we're sitting there in the field, uh, you know, there's not a lot of birds flying, and so we're texting back and forth, hey, how are the birds flying? And so I'm sitting here texting, yeah, there's not many birds, you know, right now. And then invariably at that time, my son's like, Dad, four birds just flew over your head. I'm like, ah, these bones, you know, it probably wouldn't have hit them anyway, but this amazing technology that we have at our fingertips uh, can often be a distraction and pull us away from our purposes. Uh, But busyness can do that too. Uh, Sometimes we get overwhelmed with just too many things on our growing honey-do and want-to-do list. Uh, Or maybe you're you're pretty good with that. Maybe you're one of those people that are an amazing multitasker and and you can post on Instagram while you're watching a movie during a work Zoom meeting while you're giving your dog a bath. But did you forget to turn the stove off? Many things can interrupt our train of thought or the activity that we're doing. Kids can derail a meaningful conversation. A friend in need can take time away from family or work. A how-to video can distract you from actually doing the job. As we take on multiple roles in life, our purposes can multiply beyond our ability to juggle them. I'm a follower of Christ and a member of Redemption Bible Church. I am a husband and a father, a son a friend, physical therapist, an amateur cook, not chili, uh, a pretend craftsman, and a wannabe outdoorsman. I'm sure you can make a longer list than that. Uh, But juggling all of these different roles can become a little disorienting as you pass from purpose to purpose. Have you ever walked into a, a clear river? And you look down, you can see your feet, you can see uh, the riverbed, you can see the rocks and the grass and the sand, and it's it's beautiful, right? And as you're stepping across this river, you're pretty confident, you know, pretty peaceful because you can see the riverbed. But as you move around from place to place, you notice that you're starting to kick up the, the soot a little bit, and it's getting a little bit muddy. And maybe you're getting to a part where there's a little faster current, right? And now you can't see where you're going because the water has been muddied. And so you're stumbling and tripping over these stones and these weeds. And then you're just trying to not fall flat on your face in the middle of this river. Many times as we jump from roll to roll, life can get muddied up too. It becomes difficult to see the main purpose among all the other roles and distractions that we are part of. If you feel this way, I believe the Bible can help clear up the water Or at least show us the main purpose so that even if we're waiting in the life of muddy, cloudy waters, we can be confident that there is a singular purpose that flows through and unites it all. 
It's not complicated, yet it reaches into every part of our lives. It's simple, but we seem so easily drawn away from it. In the midst of all the activities and distractions of life, living for Christ is our singular purpose. You can turn to Colossians 3, but I want to give you a little background for it first. Uh, Colossians is a letter that was written by Paul to the church of Colossae, and he is writing it to address false teachings that were being promoted uh, from some of the leaders there, uh, specifically that Christ uh, isn't that important, that we can pursue other, th- other ways, philosophy and, and religion and, and these things that, uh, to, to be holy, to be, to be righteous. Um, but Paul is saying that's wrong. Um, and his main theme is Christ is better. It's better than any worldly system of good, li- good living. And at the end of chapter 2, just before our section today, Paul argues that seeking holiness through man-made religion and self-denial won't do anything to change a sinful heart. And then in chapter 3, we see that Paul explains what is necessary to live for Christ. So we're going to look in verses 1 through 4 first and see that our first point is life in Christ is essential to living for Christ. All right, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. I'm going to go through this passage and and talk about uh, what we learn um, from these first four verses. But what Paul is doing is he's showing the difference between those who seek a man-made religion um, and those who seek Christ. When he says, if you have been raised with Christ, he's putting a fork in the road for the church in Colossae to make a decision. Are we identifying ourselves with Christ or are we identifying ourselves with these rules and regulations and self-denial? Are we trying our own way? Will they choose to identify with Christ or their own? What would you choose? Uh, This is the same question that Paul places before us. If you have been raised with Christ, are you raised with Christ? And this lays the foundation for the rest of the passage. Your answer to this question makes all the difference. We're talking about living for Christ. Before you can even start to do that, you have to have an answer. Those who identify with Christ, this is what we believe. Jesus is the son of God. He lived a perfect life on earth, died on the cross for our sins, and was raised from the grave three days later. Christian faith and hope depends on the resurrection of Christ. Scripture tells us if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we are the most to be pitied. The resurrection of Christ is the proof that the gospel is true. It's the proof that Jesus' death was accepted for payment for our sin. It is a proof that he defeated sin and death. It is a proof that Christ has the ability to give life to those who trust him. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no eternal life and no single purpose to live for Christ. And so Christians who depend on this fact are of all people most to be pitied if it's not true. But we know it's true. We know Jesus is resurrected from the grave. We know Jesus defeated sin and the grave. And Roman tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't confess this, you are left to yourself. And the problem with that is we stand before a righteous and holy God who will call us to an account of our sins. And we can't pay for that. We can't contribute goodness to our salvation. We only contribute the sin that has to be forgiven. Without Christ's death, there's no suitable payment for your sin. You can't satisfy the debts that you owe. But 
Ephesians 2 says, the grace of God and salvation. In his mercy, because of his love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved, not by works. There's no room in that verse for our own efforts. God is not waiting for you to clean yourself up so that he can accept you. In fact, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died while we still hated him, rejected him, and loved ourselves. Before we came to him, he died for us. And it is the blood of Christ that scrubs off the stains of sin. It is the good work of Christ that makes us acceptable to God. That is why to live for Christ, you must put your faith in Christ. Having been raised with Christ signifies the power of Jesus and his new life in us. This resurrection power, this resurrection life empowers us to walk in the newness of life that we have in him. Not only are we identified uh, as new uh, creatures, as a new self uh, in Christ, but we also identify with Christ in death. Uh, and so verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Those who trust Jesus are changed to the core. The old self that rejected God and elevated self is dead. In place of the old stone heart is a new heart with new desires and a new purpose as based on Jesus Christ. Like a fern growing out of a dead tree stump, the old nature has died and the new nature has emerged. If you have died and been raised with Christ, verse 3 continues that you are hidden in Christ. This means you are covered by Christ. You are no longer standing before God alone in your sin. You are standing hidden with Christ because Jesus has cleansed you of all your sin from the past and for the future. And he has covered you in his own righteousness, which can never be stained. You are not only hidden with him, but he gives new life to your soul, his resurrection life, which is why verse four says Christ who is your life. You are eternally united with Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is one of the most comforting truths from Scripture. You are safe and secure in your identity in Christ, hidden in the loving grip of Jesus. And one day, verse 4 tells us, when he appears, we will all appear with him. He promises to return for us. All those who died in Christ will one day be revealed as the sons and daughters of God. We will be with him in glory. The security and promise of Christ gives us the power and motivation to live for him because he lives in us. There is no other foundation that we can trust. If we miss this first point, we miss the whole point. To live for Christ, you must have life in Christ. So come to Jesus first. Don't try to live for him without trusting him. You can't do it. If you are in Christ, you have a new identity. And this new identity establishes and empowers your new purpose. That's why the life in Christ is essential for living for Christ. And so the rest of this passage, once we've established, if, if you are in Christ, then the rest of this applies. We can live for Christ because Christ is in us. So I encourage you, if, if that's not describing you, ask questions. Somebody that you came with, somebody you see here, if you have questions about faith, about salvation, ask. Um, we would love to answer if we can. So the rest of this passage shows a, a believers, true believers, how to live for Christ. So we're going to look at these same verses because once we've identified uh, the union with Christ as the foundation for our life uh, in Christ and living for Christ, that we see that there's a response to this. There's a response to who we are in Christ. 
Verse 1 says, if you have been raised with Christ, do what? You're looking at it. Seek the things above where Christ is. And verse 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and are hidden with Christ. Our activity of living for Christ is a response to the life that we have in Christ. And so to live for Christ, we must keep seeking Christ. It doesn't say that if you're, if you're raised in Christ, just work harder. Just stop doing this. Uh, just move to the mountains and become a hermit. All right? In order to live for Christ, it says, seek and set your mind on the things above. We must regularly focus our hearts and our minds on things above. We seek after things from our heart. Uh, this refers to our desires and our longing. Uh, think about when you pursued your husband or wife, or when you sought after a degree or a job. Your heart wanted it, and you did what you needed to get it. We seek after what we treasure. And if you are raised with Christ, your treasure is Christ. It's the things above, because that is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When Christ ascended into heaven, he didn't just go to some other world or just some other universe. He is seated next to the throne of God. On his right side, that means that he's on the side of power and authority and representation. So Christ is ruling with authority as God is. Do you know what the first Christian martyr Stephen saw just before he was stoned? He looked to heaven and said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know what happened to him? He was stoned to death because he said that. To the Pharisees, that was equating Jesus with God, and so it was blasphemous to them. But to us, it's comforting. It's our foundation. Jesus is God the Son. And so when we, when we think about Christ being in heaven, where he is next to the throne of God, we are encouraged because Jesus is ruling alongside God. And in all of his power and authority, he's also promised that he would be with us. He would never leave us. So as we long to be with him, but we're stuck here on earth, we trust his faithful love and his promise to never leave us or forsake us. As we keep seeking Christ, our hearts line up with his and carry out our singular purpose on earth, which is to live for him. Similar to seeking, uh, we are to set our minds on things above, not on earth. So when you set your mind on something, you train your thoughts to remain focused on it. You commit to it. It becomes the motivational thought that pulls you through hard times when you want to quit. We have any runners in the room? No? We had one last time. Marathon runners. Okay. I was told that uh, around the 18 to 20 mile mark is the wall. Uh, for those of us like me who run 5K like every five years, it's usually like the first half mile. That's my wall. Setting your mind on something is like setting your mind on that finish line when you hit that wall. It motivates you to push through the painful cramps, the jello legs, and the numbness that's setting in to get there stride by stride. So we set our minds on Christ, not allowing the earthly things to distract us from our singular purpose, to live for Christ. Of course, this can be difficult when your mind is being just thrown around in a thousand different directions. But does this mean that we always, that we can't think anything except Christ? Are we to operate in life with our heads in the clouds? I'd want to say no, because if you are connecting some electrical wires and you're off in the clouds, you might have some problems, right? 
Um, or you're holding a needle and you're digging out the, the, the splinter out of your kid's toes. I think your kid probably wants you to focus on what you're doing, right? Maybe? Yeah, kids, right? We are to remain focused on the task at hand, but not forget our singular purpose, to live for Christ through the task. This purpose flows through every other purpose and roles we are in. We do everything with the motivation and awareness that we are living for Christ through everything we do. Even if it's just taking out the trash because your roommate or husband forgot to do it again. Seeking Christ and setting our minds on him keeps us centered on the singular purpose of living for him in the midst of life's roles and distractions. The flow of our thoughts, attitudes, and motivations align with the person of Christ as we set our minds on him. And this maintains the clear conviction to live for Christ, even when the crazy water of life is being so stirred up that you can't see clearly. We keep seeking Christ to stay aligned with his person, his promise, and his power. So that when the coffee gets spilled on your project or your spouse hurts you again, you can respond with peace and hope rather than anger and cursing. As a physical therapist, when I'm stretching patients who have tight knees or shoulders, it's not real comfortable. Uh, so I'll tell them to just go to their happy place. And uh, usually they, they kind of go off and then come back because you know it's hard to do that when somebody's doing this to you. But... Our happy place should be in heaven. It should be with Christ. We go to him when we need peace, wisdom, patience, clarity, and gentleness. We ask the all-powerful reigning Christ to help us because he is our life. We study our emotions on who Christ is and what he has done and what he has promised. Those thoughts become comforts and motivation for living for Christ. We have to fight to keep our heart and our mind focused on things above. There are constant distractions turning to, uh, trying to turn our eyes from the singular purpose of living for Christ. And it's not just going to happen. We have to make it a regular practice to seek Christ. To do the things necessary to see Christ and to grow our affections for him. What do you do to cultivate love and trust for Christ? How do you remind yourself about the goodness of Christ? What structures have you built into your, your routine to make Christ your happy place? We need to set aside time to seek and set our minds on Christ. Because as we get busier, it becomes more and more difficult to keep the first thing first. If you want to carry out your single purpose to live for Christ, you have to dedicate time to meditate on the glory of Jesus. We do this through the word through memorizing scripture, by setting up reminders of Christ in places where you might seem to lose focus often. Or maybe you have a couple favorite songs that bring you back to seeking Christ above. When our youngest daughter gets frightened at night, Becky usually uh, sings a couple of songs to comfort her. What are the lullabies of Christ that calm your fears and anxieties? There are practical and necessary steps that we need to take to live for Christ. But we need to understand that these actions are not what saves us, and, it's, and it cannot be the primary focus of our hearts and minds. Christ alone is what we seek and set our minds upon. It is by seeking Christ and setting our minds on Him that we can do the things to live for Him. Which leads us to our, our next step. In living for Christ, we must kill sinful habits. This is verse 5 through 9, sorry. Okay. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self 
with its practices. Here we see that to live for Christ, believers must kill sinful habits that remain in our flesh. Put to death, therefore. That therefore is a key word. It's referring back to our identity in Christ. You have been raised with Christ and hidden with Christ. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. It reminds us that we do this because we are in Christ. We kill sin because we are already dead to it and alive in Christ. Galatians says those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Our experience here on earth is different than the reality of who we are in Christ. This is because we're still in our flesh. So we still have the real struggle with sin. But because Christ is in us, it is a struggle. Even though sin still exists in and around us, we are no longer controlled by it. Those who have life in Christ have victory over death and over sin because Christ has victory over death and over sin. Listen to what Romans 6 tells us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we know that our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. In Christ, you have been freed from the consequence and the power of sin. So in this lifetime war against the sin that remains in our own flesh, we fight tenaciously to kill the sinful habits because Christ has already won. We fight like we've already won because Jesus has. Rather than going to self-willed self-denial first, we depend on the power of our union with Jesus and look to him as we slay our sinful habits. We have to start with faith, not function. If we miss this point, we miss the whole point. It's not about avoiding all the wrong things and doing all the right things so that we can be good enough. Only the grace of God through faith in Christ makes us good enough. And so while we battle against our own sin, we don't do it to earn God's love. He poured out his love on us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. We fight sin in response to his love for us. This is what believers do. Those who love Jesus hate what Jesus hates and work to kill what Jesus has killed. Verse 5 shows us that we are specifically to put the crosshairs on sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. The words here are describing outward actions and inward thoughts associated with sexual sin and selfish desire. To live for Christ, we must be ruthless with these evil desires and thoughts. Immorality and greed have no place in the life of a believer because they are earthly and self-focused. We are to kill them. This is very strong language because the influence of these evil motives are so strong in our flesh. Humans have such a tendency to engage in physical and mental sexual sin, it's become a multi-billion dollar industry. Temptations are at our fingertips. Immorality and greed are the driving force behind advertisements that want you to buy their products in pursuit of earthly pleasures. Just watch ads on your TV or your phone. They trigger greed and immoral desires that draw you away from the things above. In fact, verse 5 says that they lead to idolatry. These sinful desires place your own pleasure and comfort as the single purpose of life. Moving Christ off the throne and replacing him with ourselves. Sexual sin and greed are so destructive to a believer because it results in self-worship idolatry. If you want to live for Christ, you must take absolute and definitive action to kill these sinful habits. To allow them to linger will spiral you deeper and deeper into dark places that turn people into objects of your pleasure and draw you away from intimacy with Christ. These were the old practices 
that we too once walked when we were living in them. Many Christians recognize these sinful patterns in their lives before they came to Christ. And that is usually one of the most notable changes in their lives since their salvation. Yet, so many believers still struggle to overcome these types of sins. Over and over, we hear of fellow believers who fall to sexual sin and worldly greed, always wanting more and using people for their own advantage. They get sucked into worldly idolatry because their hearts and minds are set on the earthly things, not on Christ. Do you know what happened to the Israelites who made and worshipped golden, uh, the golden calf? Just a couple of months after God had rescued them from Egypt, 3,000 men were killed by the sword because of their idolatry. In Numbers, we see 24,000 Israelites die by a plague because of their idolatry. Idolatry is a serious sin. In fact, verse 6 tells us it is because of these sins that the wrath of God is coming. But idolatry doesn't have to involve a statue or a false god. Idolatry is when you place anything that is more important to you than God. This is the very first sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. And idolatry is the same sin that underlies all the other sins we commit against God because it places ourselves on the throne of most important. Because God deals with idolatry so severely, we also must deal severely with our own sinful habits that lead toward idolatry. If you want to live for Christ, you must kill the idolatrous sin that remains in your flesh. We must be vigilant of these temptations. And slay the dragon of immorality and greed as soon as we feel the urge and temptation to give in to them. We don't do this on our own. We fight the idolatry of sexual sin and greed by seeking Christ. By setting our minds on things above. We look upon the beautiful feast that Christ lays before us that makes these earthly scraps look disgusting and repulsive. And so we put sinful habits to death by looking to Christ. Verse 8 tells us that we are also to put away the self-centered attitudes and motives that lead to anger, wrath, rage, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. We are to put them off like removing filthy, disease-infested clothing because we have put off the old practices of the old self. They are no longer who we are. These hate-filled, manipulative, and hurtful attitudes are the exact opposite of who Christ is and who we are in Him. That is why the believer who wants to live for Christ must constantly remove the rags of anger and wrath that cling to our flesh. We see much of these attitudes in our culture today. Defensiveness turns to anger. Personal attacks on others who view things differently. Sadly, this is present in the world, but it should not be seen among believers. These attitudes and actions are born out of self-centered motivations for power and pleasure that, again, comes from a heart of idolatry. These motives do not belong in a believer these reactions and attitudes are destructive to your soul and the testimony of the goodness of God. We cut them off before they start because we've already thrown out the old self with his practices. But how? We turn to Christ. We look to Christ. It's so simple, but it's not easy. When these feelings and thoughts are rooted in our mind, they become very difficult to pull up. Just like weeding a garden, the roots can be very deep. It can be painful to pull out. And when you think you finally got the last one, you see another one. Fighting sin is a constant battle with our flesh. But like the old hymn claims, there's victory in Jesus. You have, if you have faith in Christ, remember that you are no longer identified by your sin, but by Christ. 
You are hidden in Christ and the old flesh is not who you are anymore. We're no longer driven by sin, but controlled by Christ. So we focus on him. Jesus has already won, so we turn to him. In order to kill sinful habits, we must keep seeking Christ individually and together. It is so important to belong to a Christian community in our battle against the flesh. While Jesus has already won, he has called us into an army of believers to help each other fight what remains in our flesh. We need each other. And this takes place at church, in small group, in freedom group, contacting each other throughout the week, setting time aside to be together, asking the intrusive questions and talking about real life, weeping together over real struggles. We need one another to remind us of who we are in Christ. We need each other to pray for one another and rejoice over the small and large victories. The church is one of the best weapons that Christ has given us to help each other kill sinful habits as we live for Christ together. To live for Christ in this community, we also kindle selfless love. And so we'll read verses 10 through 16. And have put on the new self. So after you put off the old self and his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called one in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Because we have removed the old self and have put on the new self, we are, we are to live out our new identity in Christ. After the filthy, tattered rags of the old self is removed, it's replaced with the pure and fragrant robes of Christ. But it's not like just changing outfits that you don't like or that get dirty and so you wash them and then you put them back on again. It's more like a porcupine turning into a chinchilla. You got spiny barbs that now are changed into the world's softest fur. And it doesn't go back. We can't put Christ on and then take him off because we are eternally united with Christ. And so our new nature is permanent. Ephesians said the old self is like darkness and the new self is like light. As contrasting as light is to darkness, so is the new self to the old self. They cannot exist together. Where there is light, there cannot be dark. Where there is newness of life, there cannot be old self. It has died. It's like replacing a broken light bulb with a brand new one. In Christ, we are given a new element and energized to live brightly for him. Notice that, again, there's an emphasis on who we are in Christ before he even shows us what we do or how we do it. Verses 10, 11, and 12, we see in verse 10 that our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the, the image of its creator. In verse 11, it says, Christ is all and in all. And in verse 12, it says that God calls us chosen, holy, and beloved. This new self 
is not based on who you used to be or want to be or a better version of you or somebody that you admire. It is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Creator God is at work to make us more like Christ. That is what salvation is about, to become more like Christ. Not only has God made us alive in Christ, he is renewing us to be more like him. He is sanctifying us to live out our identity in Christ. Where does this renewing knowledge come from? The Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. As we commit our hearts and minds to the Word of God and surrender to the Spirit's work, we are made more into the image of Christ. Romans 12 says it is by the renewing of our minds that we are transformed from the world rather than being conformed to it. That is why we must keep seeking and setting our minds on things above as God kindles this selfless love of Christ within us. And in reality, he uses the, the life around us like a fire that purifies our love for him and for others. All these distractions of life are actually a means of grace that God uses to mature the love of Christ in us. So rather than looking at the busyness of life and distractions as nuisances, we can view them as tools God is using to craft us into the image of his son. And that goes for all of God's people, not just the ones who look like you or think like you. We are all equal in Christ. That's what he is saying in verse 11. There are no distinctions between believers no matter their race, their background, their rank, or their value in this world, all are equal in Christ because Christ is all and in all. Paul lists a wide range of people here uh, from groups that were hated and abused to people who are elevated in sophisticated society. Regardless of how the world values or devalues a believer, all are equally precious in Christ because it is the blood of Christ that has purchased all believers. It is the blood of Christ that makes us all presentable and accepted by God. So don't you think that we also should be willing to accept all believers as brothers and sisters in Christ? This equality in Christ lays the foundation for how we treat one another. But before we are even, even get there and what that looks like, Paul again takes us to who we are. This is awesome right here, guys. Verse 12, well, this is all awesome because um, it's scripture, but this is cool. Verse 12, he says, so put on um, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, he doesn't even finish the instruction before he goes back to reminding us who we are. The most important part of us living for Christ is to remember who we are and to keep our minds on that, keep our minds on Christ. We are God's chosen ones. Not because we were standing along the playground wall and God wanted the best players on his team. God chose us simply out of his love for us. Because God chose to have mercy on us, we are redeemed. Because God chose to be gracious to us, we are set apart for his singular purpose. Because of God's own choice, we are absolutely and unrelentingly loved by him. This is who we are. Every believer is chosen, set apart, and loved by God himself through Christ. Because of God's love for us, we also put on love for others. So we replace the sinful habits of self-love with godly habits of selfless love. And here's what that kind of love looks like. Compassionate hearts and kindness, humility and meekness, patience and bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord forgave us. When we have these attitudes towards others, we are modeling the love of God for us. The compassion and kindness of God 
is on display in salvation. There is no better example of humility and meekness than the Son of God coming to earth to live and die on a cross for us. It is God's patience and forbearance that kept him from wiping humanity off the earth because of our sinful rebellion against him. God has forgiven us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Each of these expressions are other-centered as we uh, self-giving interactions that display our union with Christ. As we demonstrate these attitudes toward one another, we are exhibiting the divine love of God, which leads to the gorilla glue of Christian affection. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. To bring all of this together, we are to clothe ourselves in the perfect love of Christ. This love is the divine love of the Father, perfect, unconditional, never-ending, self-sacrificing love. The community of believers should be known for this kind of love. In fact, this is what the greatest commandment is all about, loving God and loving others above yourself. God is love. And so if Christ is in us, we have access to the eternal fountain of divine love. This is the most practical and genuine way for us to live for Christ, to selflessly love others. The reason sexual immorality, greed, anger, and lying don't belong in the life of a believer is because it's the exact opposite of the love of Christ. There's self-love. But we love because God first loved us. He placed his love in us through Christ so we can share his love to the world around us and to one another. Love may be the greatest expression of our singular purpose to live for Christ. His love is what brings all the colors together to create the beautiful painting of the redemption story. His love brings together all the notes into a harmonious melody, singing the glory of God in salvation. The ultimate purpose of human existence is to receive love that has come to us in Jesus and then give it back out to others, creating a culture of self-giving love. Seems daunting. As you think about how you reacted to your wife or kids this weekend or how you responded to that offensive friend on Facebook, or how selfish you've been with your time and energy when a fellow believer or neighbor is just needing a compassionate ear. This can be overwhelming on a good day, right? Let alone maintaining love for one another when we are wronged or frustrated. But this is what Christians do. Not in our own strength, but based on our identity with Christ, based on the power of Christ in us, based on the love of God for us. Verse 15 and 16 give us a better picture of how to kindle selfless love. It's by letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, being thankful, and letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When Jesus left his disciples uh, in John 14, he said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Jesus showed the connection between his words and his peace. We know Jesus and his promises because he told us and his spirit made them true to us. We believe his words that have been recorded in the Bible. We have the peace of Christ because we have the word of Christ and his Holy Spirit. We must turn to the promises of Christ for peace when the chaos of work and kids and school are creating a storm of anxiety in our souls. We must look to the peace with God through Christ when we are being wronged or neglected by those we care about. 
The word of Christ creates in us the peace of Christ that rules how we respond, how we think, how we feel. When your thoughts move outside the boundaries of the truth in Christ, the peace of Christ is like a line judge that blasts his whistle and says, you're out of bounds. Seek the things above. Be at peace because your Lord and Savior is seated at the right hand of God. Look to him. Jesus is on the throne and loves you. He has promised that he will always care for you and always be with you. As we commit the word of Christ in our hearts, it will become embedded in our lives and the peace of Christ will rule our hearts. If you plant the seeds of Christ's word in your heart and mind, the garden of Christ's peace will fill your soul, allowing you to love others like Christ loves you. Make this garden your mental and spiritual happy place when life is cranking on your arm. Not only will the word of Christ bring peace to your own soul, it will bring peace and maturity to fellow believers as we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. It will produce rejoicing and thankfulness in the body of Christ as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together, reflecting on Christ, our creator and savior in worship. Does living for Christ sound doable for you? Are you ready to keep seeking Christ, kill sinful habits, and kindle selfless love? Are you overwhelmed? That's the point. Not only do we need Jesus for salvation, we need him for life. It is too much for us to accomplish alone. We must regularly go to him. It is his life that empowers us to live for him. That is why our identity in Christ is deeper than just a mental agreement. Our life in God is more than just a theological idea. Our dependency on the spirit is more than just a humble notion. There is actual power in our union with Christ. There is walking on water power as we fix our heart on Jesus. There is storm-stopping power as we set our minds on Jesus. There is temple-clearing power as we identify our death with Jesus. There is die-for-your-neighbor power as we experience the selfless love of Jesus. Life in Jesus gives us the power to live for Jesus. And so our single purpose is both found in Jesus and met through Jesus. This is your singular purpose, to live for Christ because he died for you. We'll finish with verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray.